If you were with us last week, you heard Father James. He was talking about the 18th chapter of Genesis. Uh, he talked about the, the coming of these three strangers to visit with uh, Abraham. Um, I want to talk with you this morning about the subject of prayer. Prayer seems to be the, the, the theme that ties together all of our lessons. If you noticed, it's, it's clearly there in the gospel passage. Jesus being asked to teach on prayer and giving examples, ex expanding afterwards. You've got the Colossians passage and you've got the, uh, the psalm, which are both prayers, obviously. And, but I don't know if you realize that, that the, the, the Genesis passage you heard read by Andrew a little while ago, in fact, also is about the subject of prayer. And maybe you know this story from the Old Testament, maybe you don't. But whether you do or don't, I want you to see in it that there is actually a lot to teach us about prayer. So what I want to do is I want to reflect on, on Genesis 18 and then we'll sort of view that in light of, of the, the gospel lesson, but just really briefly. So um, the first thing I think you need to understand about Genesis 18, as I said, James preached on the first half of this passage. These three strangers come. Abraham, being a good Middle Eastern man, offers hospitality and and it's there that uh, he, the pronouncement is made that Abraham's wife, uh, Sarah, will give birth to a child, Isaac. And it causes Sarah to laugh. And James gave us applications for what that means. And, and Isaac's name actually means laughter. So you can, you can go back and look at the first part of the passage. But the second part is what happens after these three strangers. A lot of speculation. We don't know exactly. Uh, who these three were. It seems from what goes on further in the narrative that, that two of them were angels and the third was the Lord himself. Now how that is, we're not told. How, how the Lord came to Abraham, was this the pre-incarnate Jesus? We're not told, we don't understand. But we're told that the Lord speaks to Abraham in this passage. Now I want you to know that the, the, to begin to kind of get a, a handle on on this understanding of prayer in Genesis 18, you really have to go back to uh, verse 16. And so if you've got the, the Pew Bible there, um, you might want to turn over. I'd, I uh, would encourage you to. Back to verse 16, because really verse 16 lays the foundation for our understanding of the second part of the passage. It says in verse 16 of Genesis 18, Page 13 in the Pew Bible. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. These three strangers looked down on the city of Sodom, famous Sodom and Gomorrah. You've heard of that, no doubt. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. You know how you sort of walk with somebody to the door or to the end of the road. If you're, you know, they're going on a journey, they're, they're parting from you. So Abraham walks out there with, with the three and then it says, the Lord said, and it seems as if the Lord is really talking to the Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a soliloquy, if you will, if you want to have a literary term to put on this. The Lord begins to have a conversation with himself. And he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Of course, this is a reference to Jesus Christ. For I have chosen him from, for he may, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness 
and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So you get the story here. So here's God having a conversation and saying, I'm about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm about to go down and look upon this, these cities and, and, and see how wicked they are. Do I withhold what my plan is from Abraham or do I let him in? And God says, well, let's see. I've decided that Abraham is going to be a great nation. He's going to be a leader. And through him, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And so it probably means that Abraham needs to understand about my righteousness and my justice. And then secondly, the Lord says, and also Abraham will be a teacher of righteousness and justice. And so it will be helpful for him to understand what my mind is about these issues. Have you ever been in that privileged situation where you had a mentor or a, uh, somebody that was a, a colleague, but, but somebody obviously that was more advanced in your field, and you were able, you had that kind of special relationship where you were able to, to sort of pull them aside and say, hey, you know, I just want to kind of understand what your thought process was here and, and how you came to that decision. I mean, for, whenever I get a chance to be around great preachers or great uh, leaders in the church, I love to pick their brain, so to speak. That's the term, which is kind of a gross term if you think about it. But, but I, I like to try to get their insight, like what are they thinking? And, and that's exactly, except Abraham doesn't have to ask that of the Lord. The Lord decides, you know what, I'm going to share my mind, my heart, with Abraham. He's going to be a great leader. He's going to be a teacher of righteousness and justice. I want him to know what my heart is about this. And here's the thing. I, I think oftentimes we as thinking human beings, we think we understand if God is good or bad or righteous or unrighteous or merciful enough or too merciful. And we make those decisions and we go on without ever seeking the Lord himself. But here in Genesis 18, we see the Lord's desire, his heart, God's heart, is to reveal his righteousness and justice to Abraham to increase his understanding. Have you ever thought about prayer as one purpose for prayer is that we might know the heart of God, that we might understand his ways, that we might seek to have understanding? Well, that's what goes on here. God wants Abraham to know and that's, off, I think it's important because, you know, you know, if you know this passage, you can sort of get into the whole back and forth. And it feels, you know, as sort of an extrovert married to an extrovert saleswoman, you know, you kind of hear a little bit of a song and dance going here, you know. Is this some sort of legal maneuvering? Well, you'll do it for 50, but 45, can I hear 40? Would you go to 30? How about 20? Well, okay, you know, about 10. And, you know, is that what's going on? Is this a bargaining with the Lord? No, I don't think so at all. I think that Abraham is, is, is being invited to know God's heart. And so having been invited, Abraham begins to ask questions that will help him understand how great the grace and mercy of God is. So it's only after God has this conversation with himself that he opens up to Abraham and says, I'm about to go down to investigate Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm going to 
see how great their wickedness is. I'm going to judge what has, what's been, what, what I've heard or what, I've, what I know about the city. I'm going to investigate to find out how great is their sin. We don't know a lot about Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll learn a little bit more about them in chapter 19. That's another day, another sermon. But we know that Abraham knows something about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, earlier on in the, in the narrative in Genesis, um, Abraham and Lot split ways. Remember that Abraham and Lot have, both have shepherds and they fight. They, their shepherds fight and so they decide they have to split the two, um, you know, the two flocks. And Abraham says, Lot's his nephew. Nephew, pick which way you want to go and I'll go the opposite way. So Lot chooses the cities, so the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah being two of the cities. Looks really good. Uh, Abraham takes the, the, what seems like the less appealing area, but in fact ends up being the promised land that God had, 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 had set aside for his people. And so they go each way, but then Lot gets taken captive in a big battle between some local tribal lords. They're called kings, but they're really city-state kings, not, not the sort of large armies that we think of in modern times. And Abraham actually has to raise, Abraham was quite the, quite the dude. I mean, he, he raises up a, an, an army and he basically goes in and he frees Lot and he frees, get this, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah because their kings were in this battle and they were defeated. And so Abraham comes in and, and, and takes care of the outside guys and kind of kicks them out and frees. And so Abraham knows these cities. So it's probably that reason that he feels the need to begin to inquire about how much, how great is God's mercy. And again, just I want to keep bringing back this idea of as we uh, begin to have, we walk through life and we, we meet people who don't fit into the categories and we, we're, we're uncertain about where God's mercy ends and where his justice begins. I want to encourage us to see Abraham as the model, because what does Abraham do? He inquires of the Lord. He asks the Lord. He wants to know. He's basically, Lord, you're the, you're the God of the universe. Surely you are, your justice is great and your mercy is great. Would you destroy the city of Sodom, the city of Gomorrah, if there were 50 righteous people there? 50 that aren't wicked within the city. In other words, how, what do you do about collateral damage, God, when it comes to a wicked city? Now, strangely, the lectionary puts us together. In two weeks, we'll talk about Genesis 15. We'll talk more about what righteousness is. But here, Abraham, who's been found righteous, is asking the question about how much God's willing to, to extend mercy and grace to that and, and so the answer comes back from the Lord. This is how great my mercy is. If there are 50 righteous people within the city, I will not destroy it. Now, this morning, if you're a person who's seeking to live a righteous life, you're in covenant with God, you're seeking to be in obedience with his will as best you can. I don't know if you've ever thought about that part of your purpose may be, in fact, that you are what the scriptures call part of that righteous remnant that holds back God's judgment on an otherwise wicked society. I mean, that's exactly what God proclaims here is truth to Abraham. 
We don't know how many people were in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, but obviously a lot more than 50. But if there's 50 people, and in the, the connotation suggests that it's, this is a small minority, and yet for those 50, God will withhold his judgment. Have you ever thought about the fact that perhaps that you and your pursuit of righteousness is in fact preserving the culture around us, the society around us? God's mercy is extended. It's interesting because Abraham doesn't appeal to God to be merciful towards the wicked. Again, Abraham knows Sodom and Gomorrah. He appeals to him because of this collateral damage, because of the righteous that he believes are there. I think he believes at least his nephew Lot is a righteous man, and and so he proves to be. And so you begin to have this exchange back and forth and rather than seeing a bargaining back and forth between God and 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 Abraham I think what we have here is Abraham approaching God in humility and in reverence and respect to God and asking for God to simply elaborate Lord how far does this this righteous remnant thing go how 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 few would you be willing to spare, Lord? In other words, how far will your mercy go? And so he begins to ask down the line. Now, there are people I know, some people in the congregation, at some point you've had a a place in your life where you've come and you said, Lord, you've bargained with God. God, if you will do this, I will do this. And we've got some testimonies, some people that have been true to their side of the bargain, so to speak. But, But I wonder if it's truly a bargain because it seems as if that almost suggest that we can somehow come to God as two parties that are negotiating a, a deal. And uh, the clear indication from Scripture is that we can never approach God with anything. We, in other words, we have nothing to bargain. That's not the way Abraham comes. He comes in humility. He comes asking for God to just give him understanding. And I think that's the way we should read this back and forth passage because it's, it's Abraham wanting to know how far the mercy of God actually extends. I'm not going to say more about the the remnant, but it it does give us pause to think about our our role, our purpose. You know, and rather than with disdain looking at the culture, calling for, I mean, imagine if the, the 50 righteous people were in Sodom and Gomorrah calling for God to judge the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. One thing, they'd be, they'd be calling judgment down upon themselves as well. And yet the mercy of God is just the opposite. Isn't that interesting? Well, finally, we get down to the, to the, to the 10 number. And sadly, there aren't 10 righteous people. We're going to find out. Spoiler alert. There aren't 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. There are only four. Abraham can't even get his own son-in-laws to come with him. They think he's crazy, and so they sort of reject that. And then his wife turns back and turns into a pillar of salt. And so ultimately, only three righteous people. But does God destroy those three righteous people along with the unrighteous? No. He allows them to escape. Does Abraham change the mind of God? No. But Abraham is allowed to understand the mind of God, to seek God, to have greater understanding. Friends, this is 
a part of what it means to have a prayer life, to have an exchange. And I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that the Lord of the universe has invited you to be in relationship with him just as he's invited Abraham. And we too can inquire. We too can seek to know God's will and to have understanding. Again, I think oftentimes we are, our challenge is not to just have preconceived notions and we, we're limited by our ability to see and our perspective and so we judge God and we turn away from him when I believe that anyone who truly seeks the Lord, seeks understanding, will find that God's mercy and grace are far greater than we could possibly imagine. I believe that's the testimony of Scripture. But too often people prejudge God and they walk away. Well, this is what God's like. Well, you have no idea what God's like. But here's the good news. He's invited you to know his mind and heart, to seek him. Now, this, of course, ties right in to our passage, right? To our, our gospel passage. Uh, Jesus is teaching on the Lord's prayer and then he expands. Isn't it interesting, you know, this story, the, the right after the, the Lord, Jesus gives them the Lord's prayer. This is the Luke version. It's a little different. Also maybe a different translation than you've heard before. But isn't it interesting that the next thing is this, this crazy story about this man, your friend, who's asleep and doesn't want to get out of bed because his children are with him. I mean, Middle Eastern culture, middle class, poor, actually they've been poor. They weren't really a middle class in that, that days, but the poor would sleep in one room so their children would be sleeping with them. After last night when my grandson was up at 2.30 in the morning, I don't want to ever have to sleep with my children or my grandchildren in the room, but that happens sometimes in life. But, but, but what, is the, what is the moral of the story? What is Jesus getting at? He calls us to be persistent. God wants to see if we really want to know the answer. Are we willing to pursue the answer? To be persistent to understand his mind and his heart. I love the Psalms because the Psalms are so raw. Even when the, even when the psalmist doesn't believe God is righteous, who does he take his complaint to? To God himself. Because when we seek to understand the mind and heart of God, we find out that his mercy is greater than we can possibly ask or imagine. Then what's the second piece that, that Jesus gives in that sort of explanatory after section? He says, seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be open. Ask and it shall be given. Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. We think that's the Lamborghini. We think that's the house in the gated community that we long to have. What the Lord is saying is, if you want to understand, seek. I will give you the Holy Spirit. What father would give his son, uh, you know, who asked for a fish would give him a snake? <sighs> I hope not any good, good father. Or ask for an egg, we give him a scorpion. Jesus says, you who are evil know how to give good gifts for your, to your children. How much more will your heavenly father not give to those who ask him? Again, I think this is, this is, this is such a neat parallel with Abraham in Genesis 18. The Lord 
shares his heart and mind. He wants us to understand his mercy and justice. He asks us to come to him in prayer. Now, we all are envious because Abraham got to talk to God face to face, but but Abraham only, James pointed out, only a handful of times did God actually speak to, to, to Abraham in an audible way. And one of those times is when he had his son strapped to an altar about to kill him. Not exactly the best time to have a, a, you know, a good conversation with the Lord. We have the scriptures. We have the community of faith. We have our minds and we have an opportunity to pray and reflect and, and through all those means to seek to understand the mind and heart of God. The last thing to say, just because it's, it is important, because this is a passage of judgment, is that we know ultimately that all the, the, the judgment of sinful, wicked humanity falls upon the person of Jesus Christ. That's where our Colossian passage leads us and ends Paul says in Corinthians that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Why is it that God preserves a society because of the righteous remnant? That that might know the goodness of God and repent. God's desire is not to destroy the wicked, but to redeem the wicked. That's why his son became the curse on the cross. But you don't know that unless you seek, unless you ask and you knock, and you're persistent to know the mind and truth. So I I pray this morning that, that this encourages you in your prayer, in your conversation with God, to understand the Lord and to know that it is His desire that you might know and understand His great mercy and justice. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.